It's Friday, February 2nd, 2024. Happy Groundhog Day. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, how a sophisticated group of turn-of-the-century con men in the Ozarks fleeced a fortune from gullible victims. These were greedy individuals who fell for a con that they believed would end up swindling someone else, when in fact, they were the victim. We talk with writer Kimberly Harper about her new book, Men of No Reputation. Plus, international storytelling returns to Fort Smith. But the great thing, too, is these are films that these other markets, they don't have. And the creative realities of creating sculpture with saws. Well, yeah, you're not adding things together. You're subtracting the wood and... Um, like she says, well, you can cut it off with the chainsaw, but you, you're not putting it back on. <laughs> First, the news from NPR. FrostFest returns February 3rd at the Washington County Fairgrounds from 2 to 7 p.m. This outdoor beer festival features over 60 local and regional breweries, vendors, and food trucks, plus live music featuring Bonnie Montgomery, Stepmom, Sad Palomino, and more. Proceeds benefit area nonprofits. Tickets at fossilcovebrewing.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, February 2nd, 2024. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellens. We're going to start this Groundhog's Day with Michael Tilley, who is in his Fort Smith office. He's with Talk Business and Politics. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to having a uh... Much lower electric and gas bill this month. <laughs> yes. So far, so good. Uh, speaking of lower numbers, let's talk about Fort Smith business license revenue. Talk business and politics reports uh, that it's less than expected. Yeah, it's um, so the city didn't have a business license fee for a long time. It was part of a, a promise way back when that if the citizens would vote a uh, one cent one percent sales tax that they'd do away with the business license, but. That's been many years ago. So it came back. And so this year they collected, um, they, they issued 3,554 business license. Total revenue, including late fees, was right at 360000 That was up about 3.1% uh, compared to 2020 revenue, 2022 revenue. Uh, and it's well above the 249000 or almost 250000 uh, in 2021. Now this revenue, is the revenue from all of this, uh, is designated for public safety, and it primarily goes to the Fort Smith Police Department. Um, they've used it to help purchase, for example, um, animal control vehicles, equipment, uh, unmarked detective vehicles. It's helped support their uh, pay raise, the 24% pay raise that they've enacted. So um, it doesn't really go to the city, the city general fund for that type of thing. Uh, and I think uh, their initial estimate when they implemented it that it was raised around 471000 so it's uh, it's off the mark from that, and it's just a hundred dollar license fee. I think uh, for food trucks, it's one hundred and fifty dollars, and there's another type of fee for liquor uh, licenses. Um, some directors, including Director Levon Morton, uh, are a little concerned that maybe businesses that operate in the city, you know, people who do you know roofs, construction, that type of thing, um, don't pay the license, and maybe they have an unfair advantage. I'm not sure a hundred dollars is creates a unfair advantage, but I think there's some effort by the city to try to see if a company's doing business in town, they at least have a, uh, a business license. LeVon kind of through his anecdotal 
checking around. He says he thinks only about 50% uh, of the businesses not based in Fort Smith uh, go to the trouble of getting a business license. So he thinks there's some opportunity there for more revenue for the police department and what he calls level the playing field. So uh, we'll see We'll see how that goes. Again, it's not a lot of money, but I'm sure the police department uh, is happy to get it every year. How How would you... I mean, would there be like somebody in charge of asking those businesses if they've got the business yeah. license? Yeah, well, yeah. So that's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, if you hire some, if you, if you pay somebody forty thousand to collect another twenty thousand business license revenue, is that really the highest and best use of money and resources? So I, I, I do not know how they haven't just discussed any specifics on how they'll try to tackle um enforcing that so we'll we'll see if they come up with any ideas speaking of a little bit lower the fort smith sales tax revenue in december below estimates but 2023 still ended with tax revenues above the previous year yeah and and i think that's the point you know we've talked uh for the past couple of years about how long can the tax revenues continue to to see big gains and it's not just in fort smith northwest arkansas around the state around the country. Of course, a lot of it is driven by inflation, but inflation inflation is really moderated, significantly moderated uh, in the back half of 2023, and it continues to fall. But yeah, in, in um, the enforcement share of the Sebastian County 1% sales tax was 24.6 million, uh, 4.6% higher than 2022, and it was up 3.3% uh, above budget estimates. Interesting thing about this tax, it's posted year-over-year gains uh, for the past five years with the 2023 revenue up uh, almost 10% compared to 2021. So, again, there's some inflation built in there. Um, the city's 1% street tax built that's just used for uh, maintenance, new construction of streets, bridges, drainage, that type of thing, uh, collected $29.9 million, almost broke the $30 million mark. That was up 4.2%. Uh, the year um and so that continues to put and that doesn't touch all of the needs uh, obviously for streets and bridges and that type of thing but it's a huge help and the city would be significantly behind on infrastructure if they didn't have that one percent street tax so and looking at the past few years for example on the street tax it collected 22.6 million in 2020 and up to 29 like i said almost 30 million 29.9 million this past year, so that's um, that's that's been good for the city. Again, it's not all inflation, so there's some economic growth that uh, both that, that that both of those taxes are showing. Would you dare make a prediction what what we'd be talking about if a year from now? Well, I think if I just if I listen to what the consensus of economists tell us is that the economy will continue to grow, but it'll the growth will moderate. Mm-hmm. Um, that consumer spending will moderate somewhat. There is there are some predictions that in the um, by the end of 2024 and even in 2025, the economy will begin to kind of pick up steam again. So um, I, I I would not be surprised if we see one two percent, maybe three percent. I think three percent would be on the upper edge. This is boring. Any return of inflation or any surprise. Um, pick up in the economy, but all, I know that some, uh, in some political circles that have you believe the economy's in the tank, but every economic indicator you look at, um, suggest otherwise. So I think it'll, 
I think they'll continue to see sales tax gains, but they'll they'll probably not be as high as they were this year. And if you go to talkbusiness.net, you'll see something about nominations now being taken for Northwest Arkansas Outstanding Business Awards. What businesses are covered under this? Well, so we have four categories. Um, it's uh, small businesses less than that's less than 100 employees. Large businesses more than um, more than 100 employees. Then we have a startup category. It's for companies that have been um, any number of employees but less than two years in business. And then a nonprofit category. So we're accepting uh, nominations through February 29th. You can go to the website, easily find the link. And it's for businesses with operate businesses and nonprofits with operations in uh, Benton, Carroll, Crawford, Madison, Sebastian, and Washington counties. So I know it's through our Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, but I do want to stress that Crawford and Sebastian counties are uh, businesses in those two counties are also eligible. So if I want to nominate a business, I just can I? I mean, someone like me, I don't have yes. to work for a business or. No, anyone, anyone can nominate the nomination. There's a nomination form to be filled out. It's not that extensive. We have a panel of independent judges who, um, if the editorial side, we don't know who it is and we don't know who the winner is until, uh, we're at the event and they announce it. So we've, we're, um, it's, it's kind of like a double blind study. We're, we're not involved in picking them. Uh, and we have, like I said, we have a panel. Uh, that's been set up to to do that, and uh, four panelists, and so we're confident we'll get a good objective look at um, um, what's going on in terms of in the the criteria, some of the criteria in terms of high quality product, service, ethical standards, leadership among the business and in their community. So there's some there's some things that we're looking for in terms of metrics to to, to gauge um, who the, the winners are. And you can find the nomination links by going to talkbusiness.net. And again, this includes both sides of the tunnel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks. Let's hope the groundhog did not see his shadow. You continue to have low utility bills. And we'll both be in good moods when we talk next Friday. That's the plan. I'm all for it. All right. Michael Tilley's with Talk Business and Politics. Find out about all of this at talkbusiness.net. Thank you, Michael. Hey, thank you, sir. Missouri Ozark Towns Joplin and Webb City do not project a criminal vibe in 2024. But in the early 20th century, one of the most sophisticated and successful collections of con men operated out of the towns in Jasper County, Missouri. Kimberly Harper writes about them in her new book, Men of No Reputation, Robert Boatwright, The Buckfoot Gang, and The Fleecing of Middle America, published by the University of Arkansas Press. Boatwright and his men would seek out gullible victims, or marks, in hotel lobbies and train stations of small towns in surrounding states. Promising they had inside information on a fixed foot race or prize fight, they'd get that mark to invest money with the promise of a big return. The races were fixed, but not in the way that had been described. Yesterday, I talked with Kimberly Harper about the book and about the Buckfoot Gang, an organization known as a con mob. So a con mob is an old term used to describe a group of con men who work together. I'm actually not fond of using that term, even though I do mention it in my book, because 
Mob today is most often used to describe what might be referred to as the mafia, and that is definitely not the case here. Robert Boatwright and his associates were not in any sense of the word connected to the mafia. Um, in this instance, Boatwright and his associates made up a loosely organized group known as the Web City Athletic Club, or as the local press dubbed them, the Buckfoot Gang. And so each man in the Buckfoot Gang had a role, or depending on the situation, multiple roles. And they were all to some degree terrific liars, skilled actors, uh, armchair psychologists. These were men who had to think fast on their feet, be persuasive, and they had to get their victims to trust them. They would make money off these fixed athletic events. And to the 2024 mind, it seems impossible that you could do this more than once or twice. But of course, this was before mass media and social media. How did a fixed athletic con work? How did they extract money from the marks? Well, first you needed an idiot. <laughs> you needed a greedy idiot. Um, and, you know, they were in, they were, they were all over the country at that time. And so essentially you had Bo Wright, who was the inside man, and he financed the operation. Then you had the manager who coordinated the activities of the Ropers. And these are the guys who go out and find your idiots. I don't think I, I really understood till I read this book because I'd heard confidence men, right? Well, part of what a Roper does is gain the confidence of the mark. So it's not like the Roper could go out and within 10 or 15 minutes have a victim roped in, could he? Right, right. So... A roper who was part of the organization, these were the con men you'd go out on the road and bring in victims. They never swindle locals because you don't want to mess your own bed. You don't want to get the locals angry at you. So a roper would often go out on the road alone. Sometimes they'd work in pairs. And sometimes they'd find victims while they were traveling by train or in a hotel lobby. But in most instances, Ropers would go out to small towns and they'd ask around and find out who the local sports were. That is men who like to gamble, men who like to bet on prize fights, men who like to bet on horse races, men who, in their own words, didn't really have a good reputation in the local community. So once a roper identified a victim, the next step, if they hadn't figured it out already, was to try to discern how much money these men were worth and potentially how much money the gang could get out of them. And once they had a good idea, the roper would bring them back to Web City to bet on a fixed foot race or a fixed prize fight. And again, these were greedy individuals who fell for a con they believed would end up swindling someone else when in fact they were the victim. And so the foot race would be held or the prize fight would be held and very quickly, the mark or the victim, they realized that they'd been taken. And the gang, of course, they weren't going to part with their money. They would open their coats and they'd flash revolvers and they'd let them know that, hey, if you make a stink, we're going to knock your head in. <laughs> Some of these victims, though, were pretty persistent. And if that happened, the gang might give them a little bit of their money back. They might even in some cases, offer a rematch, which incredibly, some of these men were stupid enough to do. They got taken for a second ride. And if that wasn't enough, Robert Boatwright himself, who was 
by most descriptions, a large, athletic, physically imposing man, he'd pull him aside and he'd say, hey, I've got the people with us. I've got the law with us. I've got the banks on our side. What in the hell are you going to do about it? And so at that point, most of these guys would just take their medicine and go home on the train and never talk about what had happened. Right, because it was embarrassing. You, you're ashamed that you got taken. So part of, I guess, the attraction is a roper. Let's say I'm the mark. You come to my small town. You find out I've got some money and I like to gamble. You say to me, hey, here's the deal. I know a race that's going to be fixed, which wasn't a lie. You're just lying to me about how it's fixed. We, my associates and I, can't be the ones putting up the money because it'll look too obvious. You float us alone and we'll double back. All of that to say you said greedy idiots. You've got to be gullible. And while some lives were ruined by people who lost a lot of money, greed was the kernel here that would bring in the mark of the victim, right? Right. And absolutely, these these victims were men, and they were always men, who were often successful, men who owned banks. For instance, one of their victims was a member of Fayetteville's own McElroy banking family, men who owned large ranches, successful businessmen. One of their victims was a future governor of Kansas, which to Missourians might not come as a surprise. And there was even a Yale graduate who'd worked on Wall Street. These were all men who should have known better, but they were so greedy that their greed blinded them. As one of the gang members said, a victim had to have enough grand larceny in his veins to make him a first-class horse thief. Of course, it makes sense that turn-of-the-century foot races would have been something you bet on, but that just seems so old-fashioned now to think about the fact that Prize fights, yeah, you understand. And there's an there's a anecdote early in the book about how a baseball game, they kind of fixed it by bringing in ringers. But foot races, it's just kind of hard to imagine now that foot races would gather all these people together. But that was a major sporting event. It was. In many cases, it was a community event that was held at Fourth of July events, Memorial Day events. It was a common pastime that we pretty much forgotten about in America. And the way the fix would work is the person who the victim thought was going to win at the very end would like turn an ankle or fall down. And that's that's how it was, quote, legitimized that the race wasn't fixed, even though it was. Right. That's exactly right. And in some cases, the uh, the, the sprinter that was supposed to lose, he would certainly turn on a burst of, burst of speed and turn in Usain Bolt. <laughs> And sprint ahead. So they had all sorts of ways of, of trying to make it look like it wasn't fixed, but very, very clearly it was. Of course, Robert Boatwright and his Buckfoot gang are the main characters, but other characters in this book are the towns of Webb City and Joplin at the turn of the century. And although they operated out of something called the Webb City Athletic Club, the way you describe Joplin at the start of the 20th century is fascinating. What was Joplin like when the 1800s turned to the 1900s? Oh, wow. So very different than what it's like today. Um, at the turn of the century, it was the heart of the tri-state-led and zinc mining district, which covered northeast Oklahoma and southeast Kansas and southwest Missouri. Um, the, whole, the whole area was just littered with chat piles and mine shafts. In fact, the racetrack was out on some old mining land around some mine shafts. It was nothing fancy. But you're right. 
Joplin and Webb City were wide open mining towns. They were rough around the edges. And if you visit the corner of 4th and Main and Joplin today, where the old Joplin Public Library still stands, that was the heart of the district. It's, it's really hard to imagine what Joplin looked like then because of urban renewal. But Main Street Joplin stretched for what seemed like miles, and it was packed with saloons and brothels, department stores, you name it. Every business you can imagine was in Joplin. And the artist Thomas Hart Benton, who was there during this time period, he later recalled in his own memoir that his parents thought that the town offered too many opportunities for a 17-year-old boy to go to hell. And in some ways, they were right. Um, investors were constantly coming in from across the country, particularly the East Coast, to check in on their investments. On Saturday nights, the town was packed with miners who had been paid. And after spending a week down in those dirty, dangerous mines, they had come to town to live it up. And they certainly did. And one of the most fascinating things that's hard to believe now, but there was an interurban trolley system that ran from Joplin out into Kansas and into Oklahoma. And that's something the gang would use. And there's just, there's no, there's nothing left. Joplin is a completely different town and so is Webb City. But yeah. it was fun to go back. There was this building that I'm fascinated with that you write about called the House of Lords with a saloon on the first floor, gambling on the second, prostitution on the third floor. And it was... It had a reputation, not just in the Ozarks, but beyond. This This was a party house. Absolutely. So the, the House of Lords is possibly the biggest part of Joplin's history that, that, that has survived from that era. Anyone who's lived in Joplin or in the area has heard of the House of Lords. That's where Thomas Hart Benton went in and bellied up to the bar and saw this famous painting of a nude woman and decided then and there, that's when he would become an artist. And you're right, it did. It had a restaurant on the ground floor. It was partitioned. If you are a well-heeled woman or an Eastern capitalist, you dined in the restaurant. But if you were one of the rough and rowdies, you dined at the bar. And yes, there was gambling on the second floor, and there were, there were prostitutes on the third. And most notably, this building belonged to Gilbert Barbie, who was Joplin's political boss. And he was a big part of Robert Boatwright's success. He was one of the most influential politicians who never held office uh, in Southwest Missouri. And that was mostly due to his ownership of the Joplin Globe, but he owned the House of Lords building and he always turned a blind eye to what was going on there. Yeah, I, I, one of the things Robert Boatwright and the Bookfoot gang did not operate in anonymity in southwest Missouri. There were newspaper wars, editorials about them. Uh, it's a fascinating look at at a, a, a microcosm of life at the turn of the last century. Banks were involved. So this was, this was not something that people didn't know about, is it? Absolutely not. Everyone knew. Um, it was hush-hush at first, it might have seemed like simple foot races and prize fights, but over time, uh, because Gilbert Barbie, who owned the Globe, supported Boatwright, I mean, Boatwright was essentially paying Barbie protection money to make sure the local law enforcement officials and the prosecutor didn't get involved. Um, you know, because he owned the Globe, this sparked 
the ire of the rival papers in the area who weren't Democratic, who were Republican or independent papers. And you're right, it sparks this huge newspaper war. And pretty soon, many of Bill Wright's victims become bold and they're not afraid, they're not embarrassed to go to the press anymore. And all of a sudden, all those dirty details are out there in the open and people who were God-fearing Christian people were upset that someone like Boatwright had more influence over local government and politics than they did. And this becomes an election issue. And ultimately, there's this unofficial referendum on, are we going to continue to let people like Barbie and Boatwright and prostitutes control our towns? Is it okay that prostitutes are flashing people on Main Street Joplin from the House of Lords building? Absolutely not was the resounding answer when they held the next election. And that's when things start to fall apart for Boatwright and the Buckfoot gang. Boatwright's first con, because he was a skilled liar, might have been, and you write about this in the first part of the book, when he murders someone who's accused of murdering his brother and he uses the insanity defense it, do you think this is a, a glimpse into who Boatwright was, this sort of pathological, maybe even, uh, you know, maniacal liar? So you're right. He did murder a young man when he was only a teenager, and he did use the insanity defense, which was still a novel uh, legal defense at that time. So at trial, you hear that after contracting typhoid as a young man, Boatwright had allegedly went from being bright and interested in books to being stupid, idiotic. People testified that when he was given new clothes, he'd cut them up and laugh uncontrollably. He would play with toddlers instead of children his own age. I mean, supposedly he was so uncontrollable that his father did successfully petition the St. Louis court system to commit him to the St. Louis House of Refuge. And that's where they sent delinquent, abandoned, and orphaned children. So there was, there was something there, but then in less than 20 years, all of a sudden he's went from being stupid and idiotic to overseeing a sophisticated <laughs> criminal organization in Web City and being called the Napoleon of Khan by area newspapers. I suspect, I can't prove it, but I suspect this is in fact his first big legitimate con. The name of the book is Men of No Reputation, Robert Boatwright, The Buckfoot Gang, and The Fleecing of Middle America. Kimberly Harper, congratulations on the book, and thanks so much for taking time. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. Big fan. Men of No Reputation, Robert Boatwright, The Buckfoot Gang, and The Fleecing of Middle America is published by the University of Arkansas Press, and it's available now. Kimberly Harper and I spoke yesterday via Zoom. This is Ozarks at Large. Robin Horn and Sandra Sell create their marvelous sculptures from wood with chainsaw and grinders in hand. An exhibition of their work can be seen right now in the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery at the Walton Art Center. The exhibition lasts through April 21st. Horn's work can appear to be ready to tumble over at any minute. Sell's can transform into intimate human form 
right in front of your eyes. Their three-dimensional art is exhibited alongside their paintings. It's all best, of course, to see for yourself. But yesterday, the two Central Arkansas-based artists accompanied me on a brief walk through the gallery. I don't think you ever get used to it, and every time it happens, somebody else has put it together, and everybody makes it look different. They pair different things together, and uh, they just rearrange it to where it's, it's different and sometimes more interesting, and sometimes things that you wouldn't have thought of look really good together. So it's, it's a real thrill to, to see it. Yeah, well, and once the work is um, put out in a, a display setting rather than a making setting, it really brings it to that, um, that next level of presentation. And, you know, you walk in and you're like, whoa, okay, this looks good. <laughs> when you see a piece in a presentation setting, do you remember when it was in its creative state, when it wasn't done? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mostly it's, boy, that piece was really hard to make, or that one went pretty well, you know. I mean, those things always go through your mind when you're looking at the work. Let me ask about this piece right here that greets us at the beginning, Just Far Enough which is a perfect title. Well, it's leaning just far enough. If it were leaning anymore, it would fall over. So that's kind of the whole concept of my Slipping Stone series is to make them look as precarious as possible. What's the, the creative story behind this? Well, I've always been very enamored of um, rock formations, um, road cuts along the highway and looking at the geology of the earth. And I've always been um, interested in places like Stonehenge, Stone Circles, and things of that nature. So it's kind of a weird thing to do, but making stone formations out of wood seemed to be something that worked in my head. So uh, when I started this series in 2001, I think it was, so I've been doing it a long time. Uh, I've never run out of different arrangements to make the components work in to where they, they look precarious and, and look like that they're, they're, they're just about to go. What was used to create this? What was used? Mm -hmm. um, I used a chainsaw, I used a bandsaw, I used a chisel. Um, that's, those are pretty much my tools, grinders and you know, carving tools. What, what, Sandra, got you interested in creating? Uh, in creating, well, always, since I was a kid, I, I wanted to create, and uh, I just couldn't stop making things. I didn't read very good, so I was better at making things with my hands. And then um, when I was in uh, graduate school, I, um, I saw a video of Robin. Um, they were, the sculpture teacher was showing videos of artists that did work, and um, first I heard it. It was the chainsaw running and I turned around and I was like oh I want to do that and he says oh yeah she's a, a Little Rock uh, Arkansas artist I said you're kidding me usually if I see something I want to do it's somebody on the other side of the world so I reached out to her and asked her if I could come talk to her about her process and that was it we were I was hooked and uh, we kind of became fast friends and she was willing to teach me a lot of things that she knew about um, the carving process and the subtractive process and that was it I just kept going. Subtractive process. 
well, yeah, you're not adding things together. You're subtracting the wood. And um, like she says, well, you can cut it off with the chainsaw, but you, you're not putting it back on. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it just, I just fell in love with it. I want to walk over to this piece over here because this is, this is gorgeous. I just love everything about this. Well, this this piece ends up being um, it, it, kind of a self-portrait. You know, uh, it, I named it Rough and Tumble because I took a furniture design class because I thought, well, I wanted to work with wood and I hadn't started doing this carving yet. And I thought, well, maybe this is what I want to do. And I, I made this chair, we designed it, I put it all together and my instructor said, well, I have to give you a B plus on it. I said, oh, geez, why? What I do different that I could have done better? He said, well, it's kind of clunky. I said, well, have you seen this body? I got to sit on that chair. So I said, I'm kind of rough and tumble. So it just, that, that just hung with me. And then, of course, years later, I make this sculpture that really kind of represents like how I feel about myself. I have you know, elements that have come apart. I have, you know, I have these curves. I have these, you know, openings. I have, you know, rough ideas, smooth ideas. So I kind of feel like that's a, that's a good representation of who I am. So what did you use? Because it looks so, it looks delicate. It, I, I don't know how you did this. Um, it, it actually has, uh, other than the uh, chainsaw texture, it actually has a, uh, a almost a leather, leather feel and um, that um, is sandblasted. So I, I sanded it smooth and then sandblasting it um, just enough to give it um, that little bit of texture like leather has on it. When you're in a gallery like this, some people are gonna come in surprised because perhaps they've never seen, at least in person, work like this. Have you had that experience? All the time. Um, where, where did you figure out how to do this? Or why, why do you do what you do? And you know, when you when you start a career, you start out making things a certain way, and your work evolves into different things as you learn how to use different tools, and you you're, you develop your aesthetic as to what interests you and what looks right to you. And so, it's not just you know I just went out in the shop and made this. It's like a such a long period of time that it's evolved over, that that it's it's really uh, it makes sense to me when I look at it because that's, that's how the process went for me. But somebody coming in and just looking at it for the first time would be thinking, well, now why did you make that and then make that over there? You know, and, and it, it doesn't seem to connect. But then when you think about it carefully, you're looking at the geometric aspects of it and you're looking at the tilt and you're looking at the, the uh, imminent decline of, of, or collapse of the work. So, there are aspects of the paintings and the sculpture that relate to each other. Sandy started out painting and then went to sculptures, so I did just the opposite, so that's kind of interesting too. Well, congratulations and thank you for spending some time with me. Thank you. Thanks. Sandra Sell and Robin Horn with me in the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery yesterday. The exhibition of their works remains open to the public at the Walton Art Center through April 21st. The gallery is open Monday through Friday from 10 until 2 as well as 60 minutes before all showtimes at the venue.
Happy Groundhog Day. Let's find out what is going on for the first week of February. To do that, I call in Becca Martin-Brown, the arts and entertainment editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, who's at her Bella Vista office. Becca, happy Groundhog's Day. Oh, I hope that winter's over. <laughs> you know where I fall on that. Yeah. So I'm probably not going to get to go to Van Buren to see this play. But you want others to. Oh, I do, because I want to see it so bad. It's called Sherlock the Musical. Sherlock is in Holmes? As in Holmes. It's being produced by Young Actors Guild, which, of course, is Missy Gibson's kids' company down there. Missy Gibson's a brilliant director. The show's brand new, and it was described by one of the Young Actors Guild parents as, it sounds like Hamilton's little brother. These are kids 12 to 18 or 19 years old. Pretty much a newcomer named Jack New City playing Sherlock Holmes, Evan Law playing John Watson. Missy says they're both everything you'd expect from the characters. 7 o'clock today, 2 and 7 tomorrow, 2 on Sunday. It's at the Van Buren Fine Arts Center at Van Buren High School. Tickets are $20 for adults. You can see more at weareyag.com or you can see more of the story at freeweekly.com or you can go to theater squared and see what the constitution means to me which is a lot cooler and funnier than the title the title makes me want to go somewhere not there the show is actually really funny and really thought-provoking it's a one-woman show and it starts with the premise that Heidi Schreck who wrote it made money to go to college going around to, like, American Legion halls and speaking on the Constitution. Sort of like forensics that we did in high school. Right. Kelsey Venter is playing the role at Theater Squared, and I think that it's going to be, again, not only funny but thought-provoking. And, and it's on stage through March 3rd. And you can find out more at theater2.org? Exactly. Tickets start at $43. And then there's something for the younger set, or those of us who just wish we were. American Girl Live in Concert. So now, American Girl, these are, that's the series of dolls, right? It is, that are based on, I'm not going to say historic personas, but based on time periods. And the dolls might be the kind of person who might have lived then. So what happens with American Girl Live you get to see a young girl. There is a narrative. So a young girl is joined by American Girl dolls from throughout the decades to help the main character overcome her fear of finding and sharing her own voice. You get lots of characters dressed up like dolls. And where do you get this? You get this at 2 and 7 on Saturday at the Walton Art Center in Fayetteville. Okay. One day and only? Tickets start at $29. One day only. There's another something in the River Valley I'd love to go see. Piano concert featuring a father and son piano duo whose last name is Ryan, so it's Ryan and Ryan. And they have a really interesting backstory. Dad, Donald Ryan, came to the United States from the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago because he was recruited to play piano, to study piano at Oral Roberts University. And, of course, by the time his son was a toddler, to quote his son, he said, I want in on this. <laughs> People sit and watch Dad play, and then they applaud, and I want in on this. Yeah, it seems so pretty cool. They have separate, 
Yeah. So they have separate careers, but they also do some occasional shows together. And this particular show is called Kicking the Clouds Away. And they say it's just happy music. So they perform at a weird time, 4 o'clock on Sunday, at Skokos Performing Arts Center at the high school in Alma. And tickets start at $25 at skokospac.org. Mardi Gras Coronation Balls tonight at the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. Mardi Gras Night Parade is tomorrow night at 6 in downtown Eureka Springs. And then there's a ton of Meet the Author opportunities coming up. You can see a bunch of those on the WhatsApp page in today's paper. So the rest of the month is full of stuff. We've got a big calendar in Sunday's What's Up, and we'll talk about more of it next week. And if people want to see What's Up today, where do they go? Today they go to nwaonline.com, look for the What's Up tab, and look for the Friday What's Up page. And then on Sunday you can see it in print, in the replica edition, on the website. I'll break one to your house if you call me. (laughs) Careful. (laughs) Someone may take you up on that. But there are plenty of opportunities. Okay. Becca Martin-Brown is Arts and Entertainment Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. All right. Happy Groundhog Day. Talk to you next week. Absolutely. This is Ozarks at Large. Filmmakers can begin submitting their movies to the fourth annual Fort Smith International Film Fest. The deadline is in May. And this year's festival, in August, will have something new attached to it. The Mid-America Film Market, a place for those filmmakers to sell their films. The market was announced this week, and yesterday, Brandon Chase Goldsmith, the executive director of the Fort Smith International Film Fest, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. We brought uh, Porter and Craig Film and Media. They came in as keynote speakers uh, to last year's festival. And so we started working with them, and we put together a multi-year kind of agreement with them to be the exclusive distributors. And so what we're going to be doing with the film market is bringing them in, and they'll bring in other buyers that work with the major streaming services, with actually some theatrical companies too. And so what it is, it's a, it's a chance to, to put the filmmakers – and the film buyers in the same room together. And what that does is that creates an economic component to the festival that we haven't had before. And this is, it adds, creates more opportunities for not only filmmakers here, but throughout the region. I know that, you know, I'll hear news from Sundance every year. They'll say Warner Brothers has picked up this feature, and that's this sort of thing, right? They're at that film festival. They saw it. They liked it. They think they can... Distribute it well, mm-hmm. same sort of thing. Yeah, that's exactly what we're we're going to be doing. Is we're going to be bringing people who uh, some certain buyers work with certain companies. So we're we're going to try to entice them to come here to the middle of America, and come in and uh, and then they'll come in and look at films. So we'll have distributors there. We'll have certain buyers. But that's our pitch to them is. These are people and filmmakers that normally don't make it into the markets, right? You know, yes, you got Sundance, yes, you have the film market and 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 Santa Market, but then you have Con and all the stuff there. You know, it's not really accessible to a lot of filmmakers around here, and so we're providing a space for them. But the great thing too is these are films 
that these other markets, they don't have. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a special flavor to our films here. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, that's the hook to the buyers, right? Yeah. You're going to see something that you wouldn't see mm-hmm. elsewhere. Yeah, because, you know, if you go and do the major circuits, you're going to see a lot of the same films at those things. You're going to see films in, in our film market that you wouldn't see in, 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 in the Sundances or Tribeca. Or or, yeah. And, and one of the great things, too, is one of the people that we work with a lot is I work with the, the Cherokee Film Commission. And so they've been partners with us for the first year. And this year is going to be a huge year for indigenous films. You got to think about it. Lily Gadstone, first ever Native American, you know, getting already a, won the Golden Globe. Golden, Golden Globe, and now, and, and then you you have all these indigenous films that are, you know, uh, a res dog, Reser- yeah, reservation dogs. Um, you know, all these things are coming up, and so there's going to be an interest in indigenous films that's never happened before, and that's one of the things that we've already been working on our festival of bringing in those types of films and, and those types of filmmakers. And so that kind of, that'll I think, will help bring in and entice more buyers to come. When you and I talked on the eve of the third mm-hmm. uh, festival, you mentioned how word of mouth was already growing internationally. Like, this is a good place to submit film. Do you feel that still escalating? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're growing. I mean, it was great. It was kind of putting together... And going through all the math on things. And uh, in the first three years, we've had submissions from 75 different countries. And it's great looking at, um, I keep looking at our, our picture of the globe and going, okay, I need to get a film from this country that I haven't got one yet. So now it's a challenge to like see if we can completely get films from all over the globe. I even have some friends that I'm working with uh, in uh, Fort Smith. They're from Cameroon. So I'm working with them to try to get some more Cameroonian and other, you know, um, African filmmakers and try to get that if we can become, uh, you know, because I already got already got a kind of a pipeline from Italy because I work with the Cisterna Italy Film Festival and they have a um, production company there. And so we get a good stream of Italian films every year. And then if we can start getting a good stream of films from from Africa and then that just kind of broadens our appeal because and then that, that's another thing that the buyers will like too so you don't have to go to Cannes or to one of those other places to get access to foreign films you can actually come to our festival in the middle of the United States and since we've already developed relationships with there's certain studios that send us movies every year from around the globe and so that, that's another kind of enticement. Brandon Chase Goldsmith is the executive director of the Fort Smith International Film Fest. He was in the Carver Center for Public Radio yesterday. Submissions for the fourth annual festival that takes place in August can be made beginning today. Much more can be learned at fortsmithfilm.com. A new novel takes readers inside the cutthroat world of pricey antiques in the idyllic English countryside. All the twitching curtains, something's got to be going on. It just seemed like a perfect place. Seal Miller on her mystery, The Antique Hunter's Guide to Murder, and the latest in politics and news from around the world, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Saturday, tomorrow morning, beginning at 7. This is Ozarks at Large. It's time to talk about a new movie, and that means we're going to talk with Courtney Lanning. Courtney, happy February. Kyle, happy February. Thank you for having me. In fact, happy Groundhog Day. Oh, is Bill Murray going to be joining us for this? I I don't know. I don't know. Um, (laughs) I'm going to guess that if you had a Groundhog Day where you had to relive every day over and over, 
you wouldn't want to be watching Argyle, the movie we're talking about this week. That is spot on. That is a movie I would not like to relive once, let alone for eternity. I have to admit, you know, when it first was announced and I first saw the the trailer, it's got this really established hip cast. It does. Um, It is impressive that with such a stacked cast that Argyle could fall into the traps of bland slog of shaky camera fights and an ocean of green screen. I mean, Mm. look at this cast here. We've got Bryce Dallas Howard. We've got Henry Cavill, John Cena, Brian Cranston, Catherine O'Hara, and more. All of these talented people. And the movie is just a... It swallows them all with a disappointing script. All right, so what's what what's happening in Argyle? What what are we supposed to um, be excited about? The base story is that Bryce Dallas Howard plays a writer who writes spy novels. They're very popular, and these novels end up being so good that they predict actual spy and espionage events around the globe. So, actual spies come to get her because they want her to write the next book and predict the next series of events. Um, and again, you have this, this stacked cast, you know, Brian Cranston plays like the bad guy who's the head of the, the big evil spy group. And Henry Cavill is like the fictional spy that's like in the books that she's writing about. And this should be a winning formula because you have all these amazing talented actors. And yet, Argyle feels like a slog of betrayals and mental backtracking that all lead nowhere. At two hours and 20 minutes, Kyle, I'm not overstating it when I feel that this movie is overlong and it has a very punishing final act. Ooh, two hours and 20 minutes. I mean, as you and I talked in 2023, that can be something you don't care about if it's Oppenheimer or a movie that engages you. But two hours and 20 minutes of bad movie, that's a lot of bad movie. It is. I I think you and I have talked about this before. I think the perfect runtime for a movie is 90 minutes. And every minute after that, you have to justify to me why your movie is still going. Some movies justify it easily. Oppenheimer being one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbie being one of them. This movie did not justify even 90 minutes. I mean, I, I could have used 80 minutes. Actually, I could have used not watching this movie at all. <laughs> it's advertised as this sort of stylish film as well, as you often get with spy thrillers. Is there style to it? There is one cool sequence in the movie uh, that you can see in the trailer uh, <laughs> with all of the colored smoke and the wacky gunfire. That's the one good entertaining bit of the movie it lasts about two to three minutes and then the rest is this slog this really difficult to get through feels like you're walking through mud kind of movie the more movies i see from matthew vaughn now the more i start to suspect that kingsman was lightning in a bottle yeah and i really liked kingsman and it was stylish and it had great performances but now next week you said you're going to review a, a movie with an interesting title that I'm unfamiliar with. It's called Lisa Frankenstein. Uh, it appears to be a quirky coming-of-age story uh, about a 
goth girl in high school who is dating uh, the reanimated, reanimated corpse of a Victorian teen boy. Um, and she starts killing people to give her new boyfriend parts so he can sort of come back to life even better. Um, and it's she sort of Frankensteins him into the perfect boyfriend, so to speak. It looks really good. It looks like a, you know, it's pulling all of these attempts from, you know, Adam's Family and Beetlejuice and and all of these, you know, other right. quirky movies that have come before it. So it's played for laughs, we assume. It seems so. Okay. You can read the full review of Argyle at OzarksAtLarge.com and KUAF.com. Courtney Lanning will talk Lisa Frankenstein next Friday. Thank you for your time. Kyle, thanks for having me. Online shopping is a mainstay of commerce now, and it offers advantages of choice and quick delivery. But I don't think anything replaces the community building of asking a local face-to-face for a recommendation. For years, Lisa Sharp at Nightbird Books in Fayetteville was a wonderful source of recommendations and conversation. She knew her customers well and often greeted them with a, I read this book and thought of you at the door. At a time when locally owned bookstores were thought to be near extinction, Nightbird Books and Lisa championed writers, book clubs, readers, and community. And through Nightbird Books, she created a community, and that made the greater community much better. We're saying goodbye to Lisa Sharp way too early, but Northwest Arkansas is better for her having been with us. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville. Contributors today included Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics, Becca Martin-Brown with the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and Courtney Lanning. Our theme is titled The First to Raw. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. His most recent solo CD is titled Still Here. Today's show was put together in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. I'm Kyle Kelms. We'll be back with you Monday for a brand new week of new editions of Ozarks at Large. You can find us at ozarksatlarge.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Rave Cultural Foundation presents Yuva Utsav, February 10th at record event space from 5 to 8.30 p.m. The program will feature captivating performances of Indian Carnatic music and Katak dance, showcasing violin and Radangam, as well as Radha Veradon performing Katak dance, Tickets at ra-ve-culturalfoundation.org.